All right, well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. It's good to be back. Missed, missed y'all last Sunday. Man, I got to, y'all didn't miss me because <laughs> I got to hear Danny and the man brought some fire last week. It was some good stuff. Appreciate him doing that. Told him, I said, you keep preaching like that, I may have to miss more often. <laughs> well, you don't need to amen that. Ah. <laughs> but it was good. I can't tell you how good it feels to leave knowing that uh, the pulpit is safe and uh, the church is in good hands. So, Danny, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, we're going to <clears throat> wait one more week before we get back into our series in Romans because there's something that I believe the Lord has given me, is laid on my heart to share with you today. Over the last couple of weeks, I've noticed this something that just keeps popping up everywhere in different areas and conversations that I've had with people and uh, conversations and things that have come up in some of the Wednesday night classes in, in different areas. There just seems to be this certain theme that um, I've learned that when that happens, that's a pretty good indicator that God is trying to say something. And so I started praying about it and seeking the Lord on what exactly it is that he is wanting to say to us. And so what I'm going to share with you today may be one of the most important messages that I've ever given. I don't want to build it up too much, but that's, that's how, how important it is in my mind. Um, it is the key to being able to make sense of things in life and enables us to face hardship and difficulty, anything that this world throws at us without being moved. You know, there's a lot of folks in our church right now who seem to be struggling quite a bit, different things, struggling with their job situation, struggling in their marriage. Some of you are still struggling with things that happened back in your past, and some of you have been struggling with some of the things that I've pointed out in the last few chapters of Romans that we have looked at, and so I believe God has taken notice to what's going on in our church body, and he's saying, before you go any further, before you go any further in Romans, before you go any further in this struggle that you're going through, before you go any further in some decision that you are trying to make, I want you to know this. The text that we're going to look at that this all comes from is in Daniel chapter 4. And so while you're turning there, I'm going to set up the scene here. Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon. And one night he has a dream that none of his counselors and wise men could interpret. And in the dream, he sees this majestic tree standing all by itself out in a field. And it is this huge, abundant tree with lots of fruit and good things growing on it. Its branches extend way out, providing lots of shade. And so animals come from all around to uh, rest under its shade and to eat of its fruit. And all the birds in the area come and, and nest in its branches. But in the dream, this angelic being came and he gives orders for the tree to be cut down all the way to the stump. 
And then the angel prophesied that someone was going to have their mind changed from the mind of a man to the mind of an animal. And they were going to be outcast away from people and have to eat grass like an animal for a period of time. And then he said that this would be done. Now pay attention to this. In verse 25 he says, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. That was going to be done until he could realize that truth, that fact. Well, The king knew that Daniel was a mighty man of God, and so he brought him in to see if Daniel could interpret the dream. And he does, and reluctantly tells the king that the tree represents him, and that he was going to have his kingdom taken away from him for a period of time. And we'll pick up with what happens next exactly one year later in Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. Let's all stand together as we receive the word of the Lord today. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes." Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nail like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time my reason returned to me and my might My majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways are just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Let's pray. God, I pray now by your Holy Spirit that, God, whatever it takes, you would bring us to the place that Nebuchadnezzar was where he finally saw you for who you really are. Lord, would you reveal your glory to us this morning, that your will be done in here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's five main points 
to what I'm going to share with you this morning, and we're just going to jump right into it. The first one is this. Everything God does is for His glory. Everything God does is for His glory. And when I say glory, I'm talking about His praise, His honor, His fame and renown. Everything God does is to bring glory to Himself. Why? Because he's deserving of it, plain and simple. So the question we need to ask ourselves before we go any further is, do we really believe that he is deserving of it? Does God deserve to be glorified? Does he? Okay. And then the next question is, how much? How much glory does God deserve? I mean, these are important things to consider for where we're going to go in this today. And honestly, I think this question is actually, uh, we're going to find that it's, it's going to be pretty hard for us to answer. Do I, uh, how much glory do I really think that God deserves? Should he receive glory every now and then and then give preference to to others? Should he get glory from just the good things that happen in life and in this world and then blame all the bad stuff on the devil? Or does he deserve all of it as much as he can get in whatever circumstance occurs on this earth? Now, I know that sitting here in church, we want to say that he deserves all that he can get. We know in our minds that that's probably true. And we dare not say anything less than that sitting here in church with a bunch of church folks or people are going to think weird of us, right? But this message today is going to challenge whether or not we really believe that. The second thing that needs to be established is this. Everything exists for God's glory. Colossians 1.16 says that all things, things in heaven and on things in, things in earth, things visible and things that are invisible. All things were created through him and for him. Everything exists for God's glory and everything he does is done for his glory. How do we know this? Well, I'm about to show you. And I'm going to go through several uh, passages in the Bible, and I'm going to move through this pretty fast. So I suggest that you're not trying to keep up in your Bible. I'm going to put the references, or RJ is up on the screen here, and you can write them down so you can go back and look at them yourself. But listen to this. Psalm 19.1 says that the whole expanse of the universe declares the glory of God. Ezekiel 25 through 9 says that God did not destroy Israel in the desert for the sake of his name. Psalm 106, 6 through 8, he saved them for his name's sake. Why are people saved? For the sake of his name. Exodus 14, 4 and 18, Pharaoh's heart was hardened for the glory of God. Psalm 25, 11, for thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Psalm 23, 3, he leads me in paths of righteousness for the sake of his name. 1 Kings 8, 41. Solomon dedicates the temple for the glory of God. 2 Samuel 7.23, Israel became great and powerful for the glory of God. Isaiah 48.9-11, God did not destroy Israel when they deserved it because he did not want his name to be blasphemed among the nations. 
But then in Malachi 2.2, he decides to destroy Israel because they would not give honor to his name. In John 17.4, Jesus says that his life and work is about the glory of God. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, you and I are saved to the praise of his glorious grace. Verses 11 and 12 says that we are predestined according to his purpose to the praise of his glory. Verses 13 and 14, we are sealed in him to the praise of his glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, 1 Peter 4, 11, and Matthew 5, 16 says that the Christian life is about the reflection of God's glory off of us into the world. Romans 15, 7, we accept one another as Christ accepts us to the glory of God. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10 and Revelation 21, 23 says that the second coming of Christ is about the consummation of the glory of God. And these are just some of the verses that speak in the Bible to everything ultimately being about God's glory. That's what you and I were created for. That is our purpose in this world, to bring glory to God. Those verses that I just read support those first two points, that everything God does, he does for his glory, and that everything exists for his glory. And so if those two things are true, then here's what that has to mean. Point number three, God's glory is the highest value. It is the most precious, most valuable, most important thing in the whole entire universe. The praise, honor, fame, and renown of God. The acknowledgement of his attributes, his goodness, his omnipotence, his power, his grace, love, and mercy, his holiness, his sovereignty. All of that is summed up in God's glory. And his glory is more important and more valuable than anything else in existence. It's more valuable and more important than our safety, our security, our prosperity, our happiness, our health, our comfort. And so that means then that God may at times forego our safety, our comfort, our temporary happiness, our financial security, if by doing so, it ultimately leads to him being more glorified in our lives. If in a certain situation, God gets more glory from us going through suffering than from us being comfortable, then he's going to allow that suffering to come. Now, think about this. Is God's glory more important than everyone being saved? Yes, it is. And so then we should be able to say the same thing, that God may forego some being saved if by doing so it ultimately leads to him being glorified. You might be thinking, how in the world could God be glorified in people not being saved and going to hell? We'll find out in a minute because we're going to come back to this. 
But first, we need to establish one more truth. And let me correct that by saying these truths have already been established by God. I'm just saying that we need to establish them in our own mind. Number four is this. God is sovereign. I say that a lot, but what exactly does that mean? It means that he is ultimately in control of all things. If you want a more specific definition, then I'll say it this way. Nothing happens in this world without being sifted through his hands. And so that means nothing happens in your life without first being sifted through the hands of a loving father. Now these four truths that everything God does is for his glory, everything exists for his glory, that his glory is the highest value and that he is sovereign. Those who truly believe this have found these truths to be some of the most comforting truths of all. Like I said, they are what help us make sense of things in life that don't seem to make any sense at all. They can bring to us an overwhelming sense of peace, security, and comfort in the middle of the most painful, fearful, and insecure situations that we could possibly go through. But these truths won't be comforting if you don't value God's glory. If you value something else more than you value him. It won't be comforting if you do not believe that God can be glorified through any situation. And it won't be comforting if you don't believe that God truly is sovereign and in control of all things. If you believe that somehow God gives up and relinquishes his sovereignty, his power, and his control over to something else, this is not going to be very comforting to you. And by the way, there is nowhere in Scripture that says that God gives up his sovereignty for anything. Nowhere. If your safety and security is more valuable to you than God's glory, then you will find yourself living in fear that something bad is going to happen to you. If your health is more valuable to you than God's glory, then when you get sick, you're going to tend to think that somehow you're being punished for something that you did, or you're going to get mad at God that this ailment has come on you. If you value your children more than you value God's glory, then you're going to have a hard time letting them go, and you run the risk of being a controlling helicopter parent, believing that you are the only one who can ensure their well-being. And if you value your financial security more than you value God's glory, then you're going to hold on to your money as tight as you can and hardly ever get it in play for the kingdom. Now, some people don't want to believe that God is completely sovereign because to do so in their mind would mean that he is responsible for some pretty horrific things. They can't reconcile how a loving God could allow some of the bad things to happen that happened to some people and still be considered loving and good. To them, for God to allow some things would mean that he is a monster rather than a good father. And right here is where, is where we are faced with the question, how valuable is God's glory to you? What is his glory worth in your mind? Let me see if I can illustrate it another way. What if God himself 
showed up in front of you in the flesh and looked at you right in the eyes and said to you, my child, you are about to go through something very painful. And the only reason I'm allowing it is because it is ultimately going to lead to me being glorified in your life. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to be right there in the middle of it with you. But I'm going to use this to show you and others my glory in ways that you wouldn't be able to see it without this. What would you say? Would you say, whatever it takes, Lord, whatever it takes for you to be glorified, you just go right ahead. Let's do this. Or would you say... It depends. It depends on what it is you're asking me to go through, God. And if it does depend on what that a painful event is, then that means that you value something more than you value God's glory. Truth is, God pretty much has said that exact thing to us through his word. I mean, that's the whole meaning of Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What purpose are we called to? His glory. Paul knew the value of God's glory and it was worth anything that he could go through in this world. That's why he said in Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's saying that the value of God's glory cannot even be compared to the value that we could possibly place on anything else in our life. No matter how bad the suffering, it is more than worth it if it leads to God's glory being revealed. The apostles knew the value of God's glory. They were brought before the council in Jerusalem, the Jewish council, and thrown into prison. And then God let them escape. And then they were brought back and said, we told you all to quit talking about Jesus. You've got to stop. But they kept on talking, and so they flogged them. And then in verse 41 of chapter 5, it says, They went away rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer for his name. Because God's glory was worth every bit of that suffering to them. Something I hear from people pretty commonly is that I just don't see how God can be glorified in this. Of course you can't. God doesn't allow us to see the picture that he sees. He only allows us to see part of it. Remember just a few weeks ago, I gave the illustration of the one pixel that is used to make up this beautiful photograph. And sometimes God only allows us to see the one pixel. And that pixel might be pretty ugly, but it is vital to the beauty of the overall picture once it's put in its place. He doesn't ask us to see the whole picture, but he does ask us to trust him with it. Then point number five, there is no situation that God cannot use for his glory. I believe this, this is what Jesus was talking about when he was talking about 
having the faith of a mustard seed. Let's turn over there for just a minute. This is really neat. Matthew chapter 17. Disciples were going around casting demons and doing all kinds of miracles, and then they came across a hard case. Demon that couldn't, they couldn't cast out of this particular man, and so they bring him before Jesus. Start in verse 19 of Matthew 17. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. Now, you've heard me talk about the fact that I like the New American Standard version of the Bible that I read here because of its overall accuracy in translating the original Greek and Hebrew, but I've got to point out that they got a translation wrong here. Some of you may have the translation that actually interprets it correctly. It's where in my version here it says faith the size of a mustard seed, but the correct translation, if you have it, it says the faith as a mustard seed. And there's a big difference between the two. Now, I know you probably heard many sermons that use this scripture. And they'll say, all it takes is, your faith doesn't need to be huge. All it takes is for your faith to be the size of a little old bitty mustard seed. And if you can just have that tiny bit of faith, God can do so much with that. But Jesus is not talking about the size of our faith here. The original Greek that was used here, that was translated into size, is the word hos, H-O-S, which means as or like. It doesn't have anything to do with size. Even when Jesus says it's because of the littleness of your faith, the word that was used for littlest there, uh, littleness, scholars don't even, aren't even really sure what that word exactly means because this is the only place in the entire Bible that that word is used. And so they had to come up with their best guess on how to translate it. And because Jesus was talking about a tiny mustard seed, they thought, well, the context is it must mean the littleness. But that Greek word there has nothing to do with the size of anything. Here's what Jesus is talking about. A mustard seed looks at its situation and sees there's not a lot there. I'm a tiny, little old bitty mustard seed. But its faith is not limited to the situation that it can only see with its eyes. His faith and his trust is in what God can do with his current situation. And that he's going to take this little old bitty thing that he can see and use it for something bigger that he can't see. That God's going to take this tiny mustard seed and use it to grow it into something bigger and more beautiful. Jesus wasn't saying, how big is your faith? He was saying, what is your faith in? Is your faith in just a situation that you can see with your eyes? Or is your faith in what God can do with your situation? That he can use it into something bigger in order to bring him more glory. Now I'll stop just for a minute and let that kind of marinate and sink in. So if you're like me, that was a eureka moment when I first realized that. And I had to go, wait a minute, because this went totally against every lesson I'd ever heard on that passage. But it opened my eyes to see what, what God was talking about here. 
I mean, it's not the size of your faith. Either you have faith in something or you don't. It's not how big it is. It's what is your faith in. Is it in your little old situation or is it in what God can do with your situation? And so a reason a lot of us can't see why, how God could be glorified in a particular situation is because of what our faith is in. If we have the faith of a mustard seed, we'll know that despite this situation... God is using it for his ultimate glory because everything he does is for his glory. Everything exists for his glory. He's sovereign, and his glory is the highest value. And this brings us to what I said we would get to earlier. What is the worst thing that could possibly happen to anyone? It's to burn in hell forever, right? Would anybody say that's pretty bad, right? Nothing could be worse than that. Okay, would you say then, and if God could be glorified in the most horrific and worst thing that could ever happen to somebody, then he could be glorified in anything. Yeah, I mean, that's a simple, yeah. If he can be glorified in that, he can be glorified in anything. Let's apply this to what we've been talking about last few times in Romans. If Romans particularly in chapter 9, really means what it says there. And God actually does choose to not save some. Then the only reason he could conceivably do that would be because he knows that it will ultimately lead to him being glorified. It would lead to his glory. Is God glorified in the fact that some people spend eternity in hell? You bet he is. And here's how. Think about it. How great. How glorious. How majestic. How holy must God be that hell is the just response to the belittlement of his name. If people being tormented forever is the just and right punishment for rebelling against God and belittling his great name, then his name must be awfully great. The horrors of hell are an echo of the infinite worth of God. If he can be glorified in that, he can be glorified in anything. Problem is, when we fail to trust that, we often try to run from and avoid situations that he puts us in to behold and experience his glory rather than seeing how he can be glorified in it. I mean, a marriage that is struggling will think, well, I've got to end this marriage. Man, this is bad. The only thing, the only escape I see is to get out of it. But God wants you to trust that he has even allowed it to get to this point. Because if God is sovereign, he could have stopped it from getting here way back then. And a lot of times, he tries to show us something, tries to show us his glory. And when we miss it and we don't see it, he's going to let us get to another place we finally do. That's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Earlier, he did realize how good and glorious God was. And then he got away from it. He forgot about it and got high on himself. And God took him to an even more difficult place so that he could really see it. 
And so instead of thinking, oh, this is bad, I need to get away from it, I need to avoid it, I need to escape it, God wants us to look at it and go, how can God be glorified in this? How can his attributes be reflected here? His forgiveness, his grace, his sacrificial love, his patience. You know, many times we miss seeing and experience God's glory because we run from those opportunities. And the reason why we run from them is because there are things that we value more than God's glory. We value our happiness more than God's glory when we say, well, I'm just not happy anymore. I'm leaving. We value our comfort. We value our uh, ability to be in control. We value our desire to be left alone and our feelings more than we value God's glory. And so when a situation comes where any of those things that we value are being threatened, we run from it. We bail. So the question today is, what do you value more than God's glory? God asked this very same question to some of the heroes of the Bible. He asked Abraham if his son Isaac was more valuable by telling him to lay him on the altar. He asked Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego if their safety and security was more valuable by risking being thrown into the fiery furnace for refusing to bow down to the idol. And Jesus said in Luke 14, 26, whoever does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Hate there, meaning the value that you place on your family and your own life compared to the value that you place on God's glory. The title of this message is The Sweetest Place to Be. The sweetest place to be, I have learned, is the place where you fully acknowledge and submit to the fact that God is sovereign and in control. And no matter how bad it may look now, you trust that his ways are good, his timing is perfect, he knows what he's doing, and his glory is worth it, no matter what. This is a place Nebuchadnezzar finally came to in Daniel 4. I hadn't even gotten to get through that text yet. You know what? I'm going to save that for next week. Because I think I've given you enough to chew on for now. I believe that God has spoken to us through his word. And I know this is heavy for some. I promise you it gets better next week. Like I said, everything points to the gospel and we haven't gotten to that point yet. It's so good. God's given us something to think about here, maybe even exposing some things in our hearts. For some of you, he may be showing you some things that you value more than you value him and his glory. For others, it may be things in your past that you're still trying to make sense of, that you're struggling with, maybe a little still resentment toward God about it, and he's now giving you another perspective on it in order to bring about the healing that he wants to give you for that wound that that situation caused. In just a second, I'm going to pray, and the praise team's going to come back up here and lead us into some more worship when I'm done. And during that time, 
if God is speaking to you through this, I want to ask you to go tell one of the leaders that's going to be down here on the front row and let them pray with you about that. Some of you may just need to admit and be honest and say, I don't believe he's sovereign. I don't fully trust him. But I want to. There are things that I value more than his glory. But I don't want to do that. Please pray for me. Let's just be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and obedient during the remainder of this time that we have together. Let's pray. Lord, I'm asking you again to reveal yourself to us now in ways that we've never seen before. God, for those who are even struggling right now, Lord, I believe you are taken onto that same place that you took Nebuchadnezzar. We finally have to just completely surrender and say, you are. You are good. You are sovereign. You are Lord. Lord, it is the sweetest place we could possibly be. It is in that that we get to know you in ways that we can never imagine. So Holy Spirit, would you come now and do the, just a surgery in our hearts that you had in mind this morning. God, I pray for those in here today who don't even know you, who have valued their whole life over anything that has to do with you, that God, that you would open their eyes right now and show you that there's something better. And the only way to have that better thing is by turning from their ways and putting their faith in Jesus the only way to be made right and acceptable to you. So, Lord, I'm asking for a defining moment in someone's life today. We give you the glory and the praise and the honor that you deserve in everything. It's in the mighty, the matchless, and the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.